Well, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. Talked about last week. I read where somebody said, all I want for Christmas is 2021. So I have a Christmas present for somebody. You may be at home watching. You may be here in the building. I found this lovely Bible in the lobby last week. I think it was left on the table there. It's a really nice English Standard Version Bible. It doesn't have a name in it. It does have, however, one of my handouts, which means that the person's incredibly spiritual, that left it. And I will sell it for the small sum of whatever you got in your pocket. Designated to the Arlington Expansion Fund, and therefore it will be dumped. Now, if this is your Bible, really nice English Standard Version leatherette Bible. Um, you can see me afterwards. I'll leave it. It'll be probably laying on my desk. And if it's not yours, then I'll sell it. Well, I hope you did have a great Christmas in, in a strange year in many, many ways. And I was talking to, with Mary yesterday and obviously post-Christmas. And I said, we're going to see our granddaughter today, tomorrow. She's in town this week and we only see her very often. And I said, you know, the greatest thing about Christmas is I don't have to take a tree down. We didn't, we, it's just me and her, so we didn't, uh, Mary Cuts gave us a tree about this tall. And we set that on the table and that was nice. I didn't have to, normally I just drag everything out of the attic and I throw it in the living room and I tell the grandkids, do what you want to do. And when they're small, where do the ornaments end up? They're all around the bottom. And, and Mary said, are you going to move those around? I said, no, it ain't my problem. I went up to the attic, I drug the tree down, I got all the decorations down, I set them here, you just do what you want to do, and, and whatever the grandkids do, I, I'm fine with that. And so there were no grandkids in the house this year, uh, I said, I'm not going to the attic unless, unless I have to, so it, it worked out good. And I love that song that we sang there about, I need you. Uh, it's Mary and I have been praying together and, and just... Uh, there's so much about with, with what she's going through, and we just constantly find ourselves saying, God, uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, we're at a point we don't know exactly how to proceed. Uh, we're going to try and do everything we're told to do, and we're just, uh, we need you. And uh, I think even though we've been believers, Mary's been a believer for a long time, and I've been a believer for 50 years, uh, when you, you're reminded many times when difficulty hits you, and I think that the scripture says a lot about this, when you're, in, when you're enduring tribulation in difficult times, whether it's from persecution or just simply, like in, in Mary's case, a physical malady becomes a mental malady and all that you're dealing with, that you draw closer to your father. Paul talked about that with his thorn in the flesh, and, and you know, tribulation produces perseverance and character, and, and that... As how you respond to that is an opportunity to glorify God and for others to see that, that it's not just your religion, but it's your life, your relationship. And so I'm driven many times when I'm doing that, those kind of things, the favorite passages of Scripture just to meditate on. And that's what we're going to look at this week and probably next week is in Philippians chapter 3. So you can turn there if you would like to. If not, you can fall asleep and we'll wake you up when we're done. But Philippians chapter 3. I do want to ask if it's at all possible, if, if a few of you can hang around today. As soon as we get through today, for about give me about 30 minutes, I want to take down 
uh, with BGs here, so we will do it correctly. Our big monstrosity of a tree and the banner and the things on front uh, that involve ladders that I don't need to go up on. So if we can get that, that and then the rest of it, uh, Rihanna and I can get done during the week. But some of this big stuff, if you could, we don't want to take everything down, just the big stuff. If you could give me about 30 minutes when we're done here today, we'll get the ladders out of the back and we will work that out. All right, turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you would, Philippians chapter 3. It is amazing when you think historically and in your lives and no matter what age you are, 2021 just sounds like a, a long time. I never, I remember growing up thinking, I mean, the year 2000, you know, that movie came out and uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. None of us ever thought about 2000 and here we are, 2020 and now 2021, entering another decade and, and just thinking about relaxing and understanding the sovereignty of God that he saw 2021 before he ever created Adam and Eve. He was looking at it at the same time. I want you to come up and explain that, my son. The sovereignty of God and, and the, the immutability of God, it does not change in the essence. And all those things we talk about, we're looking at his attributes, that he, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is involved in the middle of all that we're going through right now and he saw it before he created the universe. He was looking at it. And he steps back. And God doesn't have time references like we do. He is the I am. He's always I am. Everything to him is present. He, he is the same yesterday, today, forever, as we said. And he sees everything simultaneously. By, and that's the handout that's in. Uh, it's a flip it through here trying to find. That's the handout that's in that Bible, the one I gave, that has all the attributes of God. And it says he's all of these things simultaneously. And of all the handouts I've gotten, all the things that I have produced over the years. That's the one that I keep in my study Bible, that one handout, is that I constantly refer back to it. If you look at all these attributes of God, whether it's his holiness, his wrath, his judgment, his, his mercy, his grace, all of his attributes, he's all of those things at the same time, and he sees everything simultaneously. That's the definition of a God. He is everything. He's God. And so, I think about my life as an individual. I think about my life as a pastor and in all the different relationships, whether it's husband, father, friend, uh, grandfather, all the different relationships that, that we enter into as, or I enter into as an individual throughout my life. And the most important thing that God wants me to remember that above all else, the most important aspect of my life is that I am his child. And that it should impact every other relationship. That with Darren being my friend and my brother in Christ, that the fact that I am a child of God would impact how I treat him. If someone were my enemy, it impacts how I treat my enemies because God told me how to treat them, how to love them, how to care about them. And it's a different relationship with a brother in Christ versus someone who is your enemy. But ultimately, you want to treat them as God would have them treated. So through me, they can be encouraged in the case of a brother, a witness to in the case of a, a non-believer or an enemy, that how I respond. 
And so in the midst of difficulty, and one of the reasons we're doing Philippians 3 is that I've been spending a lot of time just reading and personal devotion. As I said, I love the book of Philippians. That book and, and the Gospel of John probably have had more impact on me uh, in, in my life as a, as a pastor in the last 37 years, uh, particularly the book of Philippians. The theme of this book is rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice all the time. Does that mean only when you like it? course not. It means all the time. And it doesn't mean you're giddy and goofy all the time, even though I'm goofy all the time. I'm not giddy, but I'm goofy all the time. It doesn't mean that you're, you're stupid and that you're just a nut. What it means is you're confident that you know whom you have believed and you are persuaded that he is able to keep what you've committed unto him against that day. That God is God, always has been, always will be, and beyond that. And that's the series that we just came out of before Christmas, that he's my dad and he's going to take care of me and he's not going to make mistakes and that I can trust him. And it's such a powerful message to share with people who are not believers. To say to them, in the midst of a, a pandemic, in the midst of a country that's in turmoil politically and in every possible way you can be in turmoil, in the midst of your own life when things may be economically difficult or, or uh, on a physical level you may be hurting, maybe facing a disease or on a relational level with, with children or other family members like what, what my brother's going through. And, and you think about all of those things and you can look anybody in the eye total stranger or dear friend, you could look them in the eye and say to them, there is hope. And his name is Jesus. He came as the savior of the world. And if you're born again, you revel in that. If you're not born again, he says to you, I love you. I gave myself for you. That you might have hope. You might have peace on earth. That's why I came. So, I, so it drove me to Philippians, and I wanted to share what God was sharing with me again. And I can't tell you how many times I've read this book, I've studied this book, I've, I've taught it. Four little chapters that just powerfully jump off the page and say to you as a believer, rejoice in your circumstances. So turn to Philippians 3, and let's just kind of hit think about circumstances and examining ourselves both as individuals as we enter a, another year and as a church that we could be everything that God wants us to be we need to be hey, take an honest examination of ourselves if you'll notice on your handout the focus of this is to avoid complacency by constantly examining yourself a simple phrase to use that maybe we would use today in the business world I know a boss that I used to have, this was one of his favorite phrases, was ne never be satisfied. When I was in the greeting card business, I was in it for seven years, and, and the company I worked for had, American Greetings, had like 2,000 areas around the country, territories, and each of us was a supervisor over a territory. And inevitably, in, our, in the Memphis district, in our, we would come in in the top two or three every year of the entire nation. And it wasn't because of me. It always been my, my boss was really good at what he did. He's a tough man, and I and, uh, I'd met him at church, and he uh, and he and he offered me a job, and and I went to work for him, and I learned so much from him. But I remember us. I will never forget. We were sitting in a, uh, my first 
I guess my second year, our first January of the year meeting, looking forward to the next year, whatever it was. I guess it would be been 1978. And so we're, here we are in 1978. In 1977, I'd been there about six months. We had the best year. We were number two in the company. We had a great year. And we walk into the, to the meeting room. It was, a, it was a, a motel over in Whitehaven somewhere. We walk in, and on the board, you know what he'd written? What you've done in the past will never be good enough again. What was he saying? If you're going to rest on your laurels, 1978's not going to be a good year. So you take what you did in 77 and you build on it. Now, from, from the, the perspective of a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to understand God expects me on a daily basis to take inventory and to never be satisfied that I've arrived it's exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. And the context in Philippians 3 is he's talking about an athlete running a race. In the Greek games, and he uses this metaphor when he writes to the church at Corinth. He uses it here. And that metaphor of an athlete who's in a race and he's running and he has to stay focused. What's the one thing he cannot do? He can't get out of his lane He's got to stay focused, and he better not turn and look behind him because if he did, he may get disqualified by getting in another lane or just get passed by somebody because he's not focused on what God has for him. There are general principles that apply to every believer. There are general principles that apply to the church. But also there are individual specific gifts that God gives to each believer, at least one, Most believers, in my opinion, have more than one. And God says, you need to be what I saved you to be. You need to be what I gifted you to be. And don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to be something else. Now, the general principle is being faithful and being, uh, being a zealot for the word of God. And we'll see some of those things as we walk through this. And sharing the gospel and loving people. Those general principles, being a man or woman of faith, those apply to every believer. But if I'm gifted in a particular area, then God says, I want you in that area to benefit the body. For example, if your gift is teaching, and I believe one of my gifts is teaching, then what would God expect me to do? Take a stab. Teach. And understand that I don't have to be somebody else. He also takes who you are. I was sharing this this week with with somebody in my family who's not a believer, trying to get them to understand why I do what I do. God takes the experiences that you've gone through in the past, we're going to see that as we walk through this, to mold you into where you are at the moment and going forward. And so I want to make sure I learn from those so that I can be more effective exercising my gift in the here and now and going forward and never be satisfied that I've arrived, that I... I'm confident that God's at work, and I want to be everything that God wants me to be, not what I think is cool or satisfied with, but what does he want? Because that's always perfect. 
So if you think about it, you get to Philippians chapter 3, or just the book of Philippians in general, and we're going to talk about this metaphor of an athlete running a race. And the relation the Apostle Paul had to the church at Philippi was very special. He called them his joy and crown. He loved these people, and they loved him in return. To the, to the congregation at Philippi, the Apostle Paul was an absolute giant of the faith. He had brought the gospel to them. He had been jailed for fighting for them. And in jail, you can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 16, he leads the Philippian jailer to Jesus and his family and the church. He had Lydia, the businesswoman, and the church is born. He birthed the church. He led the church. He brought the gospel to them. They loved him. In the lobby of their church, they had a giant picture of him. You ever go to those churches that have pictures of like the, the pastors of the, the, the down through the years? Years ago, we had our pictures of our elders in, in, on, on the wall, both here and at Bartlett. And uh, I know it's, we first came out here, and we had them on the wall out there, and that was 14, actually 14 years ago this week, we, or last week, we uh, opened our Arlington campus. And I came in one day, and there was a lady standing there staring at my picture, and she turned to me and said, Randy, this church has not been good to you. That's <laughs> it. I said, well, thank you. They had Paul's picture up. He meant everything to them. And I want you to notice what he writes to them in context. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has, has also laid hold of me. And this sets up the context leading into what he's talking about. So Paul writes to them. Remember now, Paul to them is a giant in the faith. People say to someone that, I, that, and he even writes to the church at Corinth, as I imitate Christ, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. What you see in me that's Christ-like, emulate that. That's, that's called discipling. What you see in me that's not Christ-like, ignore that. Because I'm not perfect. That's what he's wanting them to understand here. He's saying in verse 12, remember now, he's a giant in the faith of them. He's their, he's their pastor emeritus. He's the guy they look up to, they love. Well, you know what he Look what he says to them in verse 12. A little closer. Yet he writes to them, I have not arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm in a race. Never give up. I'm going to press on. So what he's saying to them is, I've not arrived yet. I've still got a long way to go, or a ways to go. And by the way, when he writes Philippians chapter 3, he is under arrest and expecting to be executed at any moment. And he writes, rejoice in your circumstances. He said, I haven't arrived. Let's see what the Lord has. So the context of Philippians chapter 3 is the biography of the Apostle Paul. Verses 1 through 11 are his past. So let's just read, starting in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I, Paul, also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, 
And that gain, if in your Bible, singular should be plural. What things were gains to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Just a side note, we shared this before. I think it helps you understand this. The word rubbish in the Greek language is better translated manure. I'll let you take it from there. He said, they are a pile of manure that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, self-righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already attained He's leading them into what he wants to challenge them with. But he starts out by saying, verses 3 through 11, or the whole beginning of this chapter 3, if there's ever been anybody who walked the planet who could be self-righteous, it's me. And then he lists his resume. Circumcised the eighth day, I was a Pharisee. When it came to the law, I was blameless. You need to understand the tremendous import of that statement. When he says, I but when it came to the law, I was blameless, you know what he's saying? I did not sin in the relationship of the law. And what he's saying is, I, like all Pharisees, I was self-righteous. And then I realized when I came to know Christ that that my self-righteousness was a pile of manure. That I didn't want self-righteousness. What I wanted was righteousness that came by faith in God. Not righteousness where you live up to a law. And by the way, so many people who are in church today are trying to be self-righteous. Hoping if I'm good enough, I get to go to heaven when I die. What Paul was saying, I did everything a man can do to be righteous, and I was righteous in my eyes. But in God's eyes, it was a pile of manure. I was not righteous. And he obviously met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and we know the history after that. So there you see his past. I was self-righteous, and I met Christ, and I understood righteousness. I was born again. We call that, he calls that in Romans, justification. I was saved. Then he says in verses 12 through 16, his present state, that was his past, his present state is, I'm running a race. We're going to look at this in a moment. I'm living my life now, since I have been justified, I'm living my life now realizing I'm running a race. He called that sanctification. We've talked about this many times, there's three tenses of salvation. Past tense, justification. Born again, Paul, verses 3 through 11. Present tense, sanctification, what we're going to look at here at 12 through 16. Living the Christian life right now till one day, verses 17 through 21, will be my future or glorification. Drop down to verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Here's what he says, like he said to the church at Corinth. And note, those who so walk as you have us for a pattern, for many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. 
Our citizenship as believers is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. His past we've seen. This is his future. He's saying there are a lot of people running around who are self-righteous and they're, they're saying even that they follow Christ, and I'm telling you they're not. Their God is their belly or their appetites. Their God is themselves. It's not Christ. He said, what, and he said those, those of you who have seen Christ in us, follow that example. But don't follow the example of those, even though they may say they follow Christ, who do not with their lives. And in his future, and I love this picture, you hear it quoted many, many times. His future is that I'm a citizen of heaven. And remember, he was expecting to be executed. I'm a citizen of heaven, and when they execute me, where am I going? I'm going home. I'm going home. That powerful chapter one that you hear me quote all the time, flowing out of that, that, that Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he even says in that chapter, I'd really like to die and go on home. But if God needs me here for you, I'm good with that. That's the mindset of running that race. And by the way, just using the metaphor, carrying the metaphor forward, to run a race in the Greek games, a culture in which Paul writes this, to run a race in the Greek games, you had to be a citizen. Here's what he's saying. What are we citizens of? Heaven. So we are currently running a heavenly race on earth for our citizenship. It's in heaven. Kind of like going on the road. You're a basketball team. You got home games, you got road games. And if you're the Memphis Grizzlies, you don't do well in either one. He said, I'm, on a, I'm at a road game for God. And when this game is over, when this race is over, where am I going to go? Go home. And when you understand that, it changes how you deal with things. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. And maybe what we need to do is we examine Stephen Cole, pastor that I read a lot, puts it this way. To grow as a Christian, you've got to be in the race. Got to have the proper attitude, and you got to give it the proper effort, end quote. It all begins with, are you in the race? Are you born again? Are you playing games? Do you really want to be a Christ follower? You got to be in the race. You got to have credentials. You got to be a citizen of heaven to run in the race as a citizen and then you've got to run it with the right attitude, not, all right, I'm in the race, okay, let's get this over with, I need to eat. Right attitude, that I want Jesus to be honored in how I run the race. I want him pleased with my effort in the race. Do everything I can to glorify him and to, for people to see who he is. And then John Lowe, another pastor, put it this way. What we're about to look at, verses 12 through 16 He says, this passage is not about overcoming remorse for pre-conversion sins, but about humility and realism in assessing spiritual maturity. The mature believer, Paul says, will not rest on past obedience, but will labor to maintain purity and blamelessness until the day of Christ, end quote. In other words, I'm not, we'll talk about this in a moment, but I'm not 
to say, well, you know, I've done this, I've done this, and now I'm 60. I got a birthday coming up in January, and I'll be 67. And should I just say, you know, it's not, it's Cameron's job. It ain't mine. He, he's young. Maybe it is his job. But, but that, what does that, does that mean? I don't have a job anymore. And I'm not talking about an employee of Christ's church. I'm saying as a believer in Jesus Christ. Until the day of Christ, until he comes back, or until he takes me home, do I have a job? Yes. It's to run my race. And even if, and I could give you several examples, and I won't do that for, for time's sake. Even if, and I may say nothing more profound than what I'm about to say, Ever, even if the only thing I can do in the race is pray, then I am running my race well. If I pray. I could give you some examples of people in the history of Central North slash Christ Church, quadriplegics, uh, could not do anything, but they were incredible prayer warriors for our church. And I know, and you know, Debbie Maxey is a prime example I remember standing at Debbie's funeral years ago, and she led our, this was before computers and all that, she led our prayer chain. All she could do was talk on the phone. One of the most spiritual people I've ever known in my life. And I remember standing and doing her funeral and saying, Debbie was a hero of mine. Because I knew that if we had a problem, we made one phone call. If today you just put it out. You made one phone call, and Debbie took it from there. And within an hour, everybody in the church knew, in the church of 2,000 people at that point. She got it out. Why? That was her gift. That was her race. She couldn't do anything else. But she did that. And by the way, the most important, firing the winning shot, as Hank Hanegraaff described it, is praying. Again, what Mary is going through right now, what we're going through together, we've discovered again how significant the prayers of all our brothers and sisters in Christ and how much people love us in our own personal lives, how significant prayer is. Because you reach a point where you, you even say, Lord, I don't know what else to say. I've said it all. What does the Bible tell me happens at that moment? The Holy Spirit is groaning for me. And other people are praying for me and for us. This is not a game. It's a race. And as believers, it's a privilege to be in the race. Spiritual complacency, being satisfied, will always defeat you as a believer. I think the best metaphor I've ever seen happened to me, Chris Ellison, once. We, were, we used to canoe a lot until we discovered whitewater rafting, and now we spit on canoes when we walk by them. I love whitewater rafting. Canoeing is too much work. We were canoeing in the Buffalo River. Have you ever canoed the Buffalo River? It's not like the Spring River. The Buffalo River has a lot of, uh, what do they call it, calm water where you have to paddle a lot. And Chris and I were in the canoe. I mean, we were in our 30s. It wasn't like we were dead or anything. We were in our 30s, and, and uh, I'm in the front of the canoe, and he's in the back, and the wind was about 20, 25 miles an hour into our face. And so he's saying, paddle, paddle. Well, after a while, you get tired of paddling, right? And when you stop paddling, and you're, on a, and you're in a river, and the wind's in your face, what direction are you going to go? Back. Word. And so he starts hitting me with the paddle. Paddle! So we paddled and we got through. And man, I've never been as tired as I was when I hit the tent that day 
and I, I think I slept hours and just laid on my back and snored. And I didn't even snore, but I did that day. And that's the picture of spiritual complacency. If I get to the point where, you know, I don't need to paddle anymore. I know the Bible and I know the gospel and I'm doing my thing. I'm good. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm good. Here's what happens to you. You start going backward. And you get complacent. Not, not that you're bad. You don't become a bad person. You just don't. You know, you're just not excited about running your race anymore. Yeah, I'm going to take a break. God says, don't ever be satisfied. Constantly examine yourself to be everything that God wants you to be. The context of this is Paul knows Jesus is all he needs now. He learned it on the road to Damascus, and he got saved. He got discipled. And now, verse 12, he's saying to them, I'm not ever, ever going to be satisfied. I'm going to run my race till Jesus says it's time to come home. Look at verse 12 again, that little phrase. He presses on. Look at it again, verse 12. He presses on. Why does he press on? Because Jesus has laid hold of him. And now he had a purpose in life, a mission in life. You remember when Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus and he sent him, you know, blinded him and he went and he got, and what did Jesus tell him? I'm going to send you with the gospel where? To the Gentiles. Looking around this room, I would say, I'm going to guess that 90% of us are not Jewish. Matter of fact, I'm going to guess that 100% of us are probably not Jewish. Therefore, we're a direct result of what? The ministry of the Apostle Paul. That the gospel to places like Europe, where your ancestors came from, and Africa, where, where ultimately where your ancestors came from. Different places. The gospel went out because he got in the race. Later on, he'll write, I have run my race. I fought my fight. That's the way I want it to be in my life, is that I know that not perfect, Paul himself, we're going to see, chief, called himself chief among sinners, but he ran his race. He ran his race. So he says in verse 12, I'm not going to be satisfied because Jesus has laid hold of me. I love the, that phrase, that verbal phrase, laid hold of me. In the original language, it means that there's a hunter stalking his prey, and he gets him. Is that when God saved you, he has something for you to do, and he still does. It never ends. He said, what Paul is saying in verse 12 is Jesus has put me in the race, he laid hold of me. It's a very intense verb in Greek, like grabbing something. Again, as a hunter, you seize it. And then he says, I have not attained. The number one characteristic of a true believer is right here. When you say, I have not attained, that characteristic is you're humble. If there's anybody that could have been bragging about what he had done after he got saved, who would it have been? It would have been the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm humble. I haven't attained. I'm just another guy running the race. I haven't been, I've not been perfected or finally matured. It's a process. I came to know Christ, and now I want to run my race for him. So let's briefly look. We're now at point one on your handout. That's, that's pretty good, right? We're finished, and we're at point one. 
Guess what we're not going to do today, Chad? Finish the outline. All right. Okay. Number one, he says, in this examination of ourselves, this is critically important. He said, you need to look at your past. You need to examine your past. First thing you need to do is look at it. Verse 13. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 13. Can't read my own writing. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. What he already said in verse 12, he's repeating it in verse 13. I don't consider myself to have apprehended or arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. This is a tremendous verse in understanding running the Christian life, the race. I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not satisfied. I'm not complacent. I am not going to rest on my laurels. I'm not going to put it in cruise control and say, okay, here, Timothy, take it. You boys run with it. He said, you look at your past. You take inventory of it. I got saved. Do I know anything more now than I knew when I got saved? Am I satisfied? The writer of Hebrews admonishes those that he writes to that by now you ought to be teachers and yet we're still having to feed you like a baby. you got to grow up. Never be satisfied and continue to learn. At whatever age you are, never be satisfied. Lord, I want to know more. I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more effective. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to communicate the gospel. So you look at your past, and then you learn from it. He said, one thing I do. The idea is, in Greek is, but one thing. Only one thing matters to me. Single-minded focus. No distractions, total commitment to this number one priority. This, it's a statement of devotion. Statement of devotion. You look at your past. You learn from it. What's important? What do I need to understand? And realize it's never going to be enough. I'm not going to be satisfied. I want to be what the Lord wants me to be. Now look at verse 13 again. Forgetting those (coughs) things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I want to focus for a moment on this little phrase, forgetting what's behind, and then we're going to be done. It does not mean, as some preachers have taught, and I think I even in in error taught this at one point, it does not mean mean you don't remember the past. It does not mean that. You should remember the past, both the good and the bad, and the ugly, just to make Clint Eastwood happy. You should, you should remember. What it means is, in the original language, is don't let the past control you. Don't let it control you. You look at it, you learn from it, and in your outline, what's the next thing? You leave it there. You leave it. You don't let it control you. That's, that's literally what the verb means. You live with a future per- perspective, but you use the past events in your life, both the successes and the failures. Remember where the picture is of an athlete running in a race, what's the worst possible thing an athlete can do if he's running in a race and the, and the, the tape is right over there? Is to do what? Turn around and look back. You, you guarantee yourself you're going to fall if you do that. Your past successes, your failures... You don't dwell on them. You don't live there. You do not let them control you. 
Winston Churchill said, success is the ability to move from one failure to the next. If it hadn't been for Winston Churchill, we don't win World War II. Babe Ruth. Even if you're not a baseball fan, you know who Babe Ruth is. Obviously, he held the home, home run record for many, many years. You know what the other record was he held for years and years? Strikeouts. You can't hit it if you don't swing at it, my coach used to say. I couldn't hit it anyway, but Babe Ruth managed to hit it 700 and something times. He held the strikeout record as well. In 1831, there was a young man who failed in business and he went bankrupt. In 1833, he got back on his feet, went in business, failed again. 1835, he was engaged to be married, and his fiancée died. 1836, he had a nervous breakdown. In 1838, he ran for Speaker of the House, and he was defeated. 1840, he ran for an elector, he was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress, he was defeated. 1848, he ran for Congress, he was defeated. In 1855, he ran for the Senate, he was defeated. 1856, he ran for Vice President, he was defeated. 1858, he ran for the Senate, he was defeated. In 1860, he was elected President of the United States and named Abraham Lincoln. Probably the greatest president our nation has ever known. He didn't give up. He didn't give up. One last verse, and then I want to share just a personal story, and then we're, we're done. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul, who's writing Philippians, writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. He writes these words to him. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. See, what Paul is saying is, I didn't deserve it. If there's anybody that didn't deserve to be saved, it was me. And he showed me grace. And he saved me. And he put me in the ministry. And as we close out our time together, I want you to think about focusing on the past not let it control you, but let God use it. Man, I can th- think back in my own life, and even right now, this week. Yeah, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, just briefly, and then we're done. My home, what I grew up in, was not a Christian home. My dad never went to church, had no interest in it whatsoever. My mom would take us, but it wasn't a place where the gospel was being preached. It was just something she wanted to do. And it was a very difficult home because my father was so cruel to my mom in particular. And at age 16, I got saved and went back into that home. And I looked back and we, we were poor and didn't know it. But at age 16, not only did I get saved and go back into that home, I met 
the lady at age 16 that would become my wife of now 47 years. And so many believers who poured themselves into me. And I didn't have a Christian father, but I got shortly thereafter, got a Christian father-in-law and Christian family, Mary's family. And I look back and you could see the hand of God. Even, even this weekend, yesterday, I got a Merry Christmas wish from my best friend growing up, who's now a pastor in San Jose, has been a pastor in San Jose, California for years. And and just think about all that we went through going, growing up together. And you look back and you can, and the difficult things that I had to go through, God has used those over and over again to allow me to encourage someone, to love someone, to share the gospel with someone. Why? Even having, for example, open heart surgery at age 46 as a health, never been sick any other than basketball injuries. I'd never been sick. And boom, you got to have open heart surgery this week or you will be dead. My cardiologist said, I said, oh, I guess I'll have open heart surgery. He said, we got to fix that valve. And even now, I can share, it, God has used that in what Mary's going through for us to talk about some things that it makes you have to deal with. You take the past you learn from it, but you don't live there. No Christian can live in the past. You take the past, you use it to make the present an opportunity to glorify God looking forward to the future when you go home. That's what the examination does, and you never give up. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, we do thank you that you are the God of the past, the present, and the future for our benefit. You're just the God who is. We're grateful we're humbled. And I pray as individuals, starting with me, that daily I would examine myself, take inventory, where am I? Where am I headed? Am I doing what you want, not what I want? Not what someone else wants? Is my family headed where it needs to be, Lord? As parents, as grandparents, as husbands, as wives, am I, am I doing what I need to do? In all my relationships, are you being honored? And am I growing? Am I satisfied? If I'm complacent, then I'm not growing. And that's wrong. No matter how old I am or young. So I pray you'd encourage us as individuals and then corporately as a church. We would examine ourselves and be the most effective individual and church we could be for the cause of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here in the house, please stand with us as we close out our time together.